0: The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the eighth chapter. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. To you, Lord I invite the congregation to be seated, and uh, I don't see any children. We'll, we'll continue. So, uh, when I met my wife, I was a little bit younger, and uh, by and I realized that depending on the crowd when I say a little bit younger some will say that I'm already young and I call those people blessed <laughs> but when I met my wife I was uh, 22 years old and I had hair down to about here and we were playing hacky sack outside of the honors dorm at USC and I was probably the furthest thing that she would ever expect from someone who aspired to be a pastor and the truth is at that moment I was avoiding aspiring to be a pastor and uh so I, I think it was about our, our second date when she said, so what do you want to do when you get done here? Because she was aware that I wasn't in any hurry to finish at USC, and that's true because I was in, in my first of what ended up being two senior years, and I said, well, I, I think I might want to be a pastor. Now, now she grew up like Pentecostal, you know, she grew up in the Pentecostal Church of God, and so when she heard pastor, she thought either someone who was bivocational and did labor on one end and pastoral work on the other, but what she thought of really was a missionary. And she said, are we going to move somewhere and live in a tent? I said, honey, I've been called to places with air conditioning. And, you know, that, that was, now I've been fortunate that so far that's been true. But, you know, we hear in the gospel today, Jesus talking about the discomfort of answering a call. We hear Jesus talking today about the the discomfort of what it means to follow God. In fact, in our first lesson today, we have Abram and Sarai, before their names were changed, who were living on his father's land. They were were living a a pretty good life, and God said to them, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave your land, I I want you to leave behind your inheritance and your legacy, and I want you to go to this new place, and... Abraham, Abram being much more agreeable than I, than I would be, although he didn't have air conditioning at that point either. You know, he said, all right. And Sarah said, all right. And what's interesting is not only did he believe, leave behind his family and his family's lands and his, his inheritance, but he also left behind his name. Now, I heard somebody say, and I have never researched this myself, so if they're wrong, then I'm wrong and just bear that in mind. But I liked it, so I remembered it. I heard somebody say that what God gave to Abraham by changing his name was in, in the Greek name or the Hebrew name, the, the four-letter name of God is Yod heh vav heh and the, the He in there is like our H. And so what God gave to Abram and Sarai was a part of God's own name, a part of God's own self, a part of God's own identity, as a sign of the faithfulness that Abraham had had and a sign that the faithfulness that God was going to have. You know, not only did Abraham leave behind family and friends and property and inheritance, Abraham left behind his very identity with which he grew up. You know, this is not a call that we take lightly when God calls us to do something. You know, we we think about Paul. Paul, who was pretty comfortable living his own life. And then, you know, there there are now tours of the missionary life of Paul that go, and the maps, when you look at them, go kind of like this, right? And you hear about shipwrecks and you hear about prison. Here is another person who answered the call of God, and one of the one of the quotes about this that sticks out in my mind is a man named Shane Clairborne, and he said, "Everyone thinks that you know following God and accepting Jesus is going to be something that fixes your life. Well, I found Jesus, and it messed my life up. And you know, in a lot of ways, that's that's kind of my story too. I." Well, when I met my wife, I probably was doing a fine job of messing my own life up, and I didn't need God's help at that point. But I did have plans. I I was planning to be a a psychologist and be licensed and do marriage and family counseling and all of this stuff while I was avoiding ministry. And uh, as as I was really sitting down to think about, you know, what is it I'm called to do when when I met my wife, and I realized that either she was going to be my wife or she was going to be someone who was very important to me in my life that I didn't want to be kind of the loser that she was dating when she took me home to her mother. You know, I wanted to be somebody who had a track and somebody who had a plan, and I realized that eventually it was going to lead me to seminary and there was no getting around that. And so I, I decided to stop resisting at that point. And, and it did. It changed my plans a lot. We, we heard Jesus talking about what it means to follow the call of God, and he says the Son of Man will suffer and he'll die and, you know, we, we have our expectations for what it means to follow God. Mine was air conditioning. But, but the disciples, when they were thinking about what it meant to have a Messiah and follow the Messiah who is called by God, they had very specific expectations about that, what that was going to be. You know, now we can talk about Revelation, and we can talk about, you know, all the, the wild imagery in there, and we talk about, you know, in, especially in, in our current culture, we hear the word end times, and it doesn't necessarily sound like the glorious return of God to redeem creation and recreate it and resurrect it so that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the creation coexist and God reigns in a way that brings finally peace and justice to the world where we then coexist and the lion lays down with the lamb and all these things. We hear the word end times. We think fire and brimstone and we think calamity and we think war and all these other things that come with that image. You know, in some ways, this expectation hasn't changed a whole lot because remember who the Jewish people are. The Jewish people are a people who are in and out of ruling themselves and being ruled by opposing powers. And so when they think of what a Messiah is, a Messiah who's going to be a king like David, under whom the the Jewish people had their own laws and their own rule. They think of somebody who is going to be a mighty warrior who's going to crush their enemies underfoot and we see the Psalms and we look at the one of my favorite Psalms because it was a song that uh, we sang at Lutheridge during music week is by the waters of Babylon we lay down and wept for Zion and I always thought what a beautiful image you know these people who are in captivity and and they're just mourning their homeland And they're laying down by the rivers, wondering what it would be like to lay by the rivers of their homeland and longing for that place where they are a people and longing for that place where they have a name and longing for that place where they have a legacy. And then you get to the end of the psalm and it talks about dashing the heads of their enemies' babies against rocks and all of a sudden it changes and and this is really what the people of Israel are expecting is for God to become present and manifest through this messiah in a way that is going to cast down their enemies that is going to crush hell underfoot that's going to lead a mighty army or at least carry us or at least do something that's going to get those romans who are ruling our land and kick them out and make us rise up as a people and here is this person who Peter had just confessed to be the Messiah, what, two verses earlier? And then Jesus says, okay, so I'm the Messiah. Well, here's what it means to be the Messiah. God has sent the Messiah to suffer and be judged and be killed. And what Peter and the rest of the disciples don't hear because they're still having all kinds of anxiety over, you're going to die? Is, and be raised after three days. And Peter rebukes Jesus. And I read in uh, the working preacher Uh, commentary this week, that uh, the word that we translate as rebuke can also be translated as shut up. Can you imagine Jesus saying, the Son of Man has come and he will go and suffer and die and rise, and Peter says, shut up, Jesus? You know, it puts into mind what an emotional thing it was to hear. It puts in mind what a close relationship Jesus and Peter had, it puts in mind just what kind of anxiety and fear and, and hope and this desire for this new thing that this Messiah is going to bring was all wrapped up into that moment when Peter realizes that his hopes and his expectations are not what he was going to get, but he was going to get this other thing, and he doesn't know what that looks like. Now, I know here we're all comfortable with change, and we're all comfortable with people coming in and doing new things and telling us that we can't do it that way anymore because I've got this great new way. So I know here this would go over really well, but at some other Lutheran congregations down the road, they might be uncomfortable with this. You know, imagine somebody coming in and telling you that some of your most cherished traditions really aren't things that are the things that are important. And in fact, they've been wrong all along. God is not sending the Messiah to lead the army. God is sending the Messiah to die on our behalf. And the kind of cognitive dissonance that would cause within you. It's it's the kind of cognitive dissonance that might cause us to tell God to shut up. And I don't think I'm alone in my life where I've had some moments where I've felt just like that. Because I've realized that those things that God has called me to do are not in line with my plan. You know, I was, uh, in order to become a pastor, you have to go through candidacy, which is on top of school, four years with meetings, and in a room filled with about 15 people who maybe you've met once or twice, and, and they're all deciding the rest of your life. No pressure. And, you know, I remember my senior year, I was, we were all getting ready, and we were, you know, we were going to find out where we had been assigned, and, which just happened to our seminarians here in the last week. We were going to find out, you know, where are we going to go? Are we going to go to the far reaches of the United States? Are we going to stay here in South Carolina? Are we going to go somewhere else? And I had my meeting with my candidacy committee, and I, I just thought I had nailed it. And they all told me that my paper stunk on ice. And they said, not no, but wait. And so it's called a postponement. and Which basically means that for a year, you figure out what you're going to do until you meet with the committee the next year. So you can imagine the feelings that I had about that. You know, the first one was anger, which is normal, which is, why would you do this to me? And, and the second one was an intense embarrassment. And the third one was, how am I going to tell my wife? And then, how am I going to tell my classmates? And how am I going to tell my parents and my church who had, who had supported me through seminary? You know, how am I going you know, to be me when this is now a part of my story? And this is not what I wanted to be a part of my story. But you know, over the course of that year, I ended up being able to do a year of clinical pastoral education at Palmetto Health, and I learned to be a chaplain. And then after I finished that year, I ended up being a hospice chaplain for two and a half years. It's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. If I had been approved that day, if I had, if I had gotten what I wanted, then I would have missed out on one of the best opportunities I have ever had that's molded and shaped me help me to be a better person, help me to better, be a better pastor, help me to be a better husband. And, you know, I, I might have done fine, but I was also really cocky back then, and I, I knew just about everything. And sometimes the best thing that can happen to us is, we can, is to be tossed off our pedestal a little bit. I would have missed out on that opportunity had I gotten what I wanted. As we, as we think about Lent, as we think about what it means to be the church, what it means to be the people of God. We live in a time that feels so uncertain. Like every third article that I see on Facebook or on, on any church thing is how the church is collapsing, how congregations are losing people, and how anxiety is just racking everybody. And, you know, we had at the end of our year in our synod budget, you know, this, this kind of moment of anxiety when we were looking at the mission support, and mission support is the portion that you send to the synod every year, and realizing that it's continued to go down every year. And all the work that we do in the Synod and all the miles that we drive, you know, we're going to have to figure out which ministries do we cut, which ministries do we maybe stop so that we can be faithful stewards of the resources we have as a Synod and be able to have a balanced budget. You know, that kind of anxiety where it looks like not filling a full-time position with another full-time person when one of our people leaves, its it is, or, or in this case, passed away, which was... You know, another moment of great sadness for us. You know, it's, uh, it's that deep, bone-deep fear and anxiety and frustration. You know, not just are we going to keep the lights on, but are we going to be here? What does it look like to be the church in a world where it feels like people don't care about the church? Now, now here's the good news. If you look a hundred years ago, you'll see articles in the paper that says, "'Nobody comes to church anymore.'" And everyone, you know, how is the church ever going to get by? You know, if you, if you look, at, look at the story of Jesus, we have in John 6 one of the greatest moments of Jesus' triumph in his ministry, as we understand it, the feeding of the 5,000. You all remember that one where, where Jesus is teaching these 5,000 people in the field and the disciples look at him and say, well, how are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus said, well, you all feed them. You know, it's that moment where we hear God will provide and we wonder how, and then all of a sudden loaves and fish feed everybody and it's overflowing. And then the people leave and Jesus goes off, probably to rest because he's tired. And then the next day the people come and find him and he's frustrated and he says, y'all didn't come to find me because you found the Spirit. You came to find me because I filled your bellies with loaves and fish. And it turns out to be one of the biggest failures in Jesus' ministry because people are people and don't understand what's going on. So Jesus decides to lay it all on the line. And He says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, then you'll have no share in me. Only if you eat my body and drink my blood will you be a part of my kingdom. And, and so what happens next is that great Billy Graham moment where millions of people flock No, it's not what happened. The 5,000 abandoned him. And then the, the couple hundred that were close to him abandoned him. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, are you all going to abandon me too? And this is, you know, Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, the words we proclaim before the gospel that often is set to this happy tune, you know, and and we think of this moment of triumphal confession. But what they are is words of comfort to Jesus in his moment of failure. Words to Jesus in a moment where he is legit asking, are you all going to abandon me too? Am I going to be alone in this? And isn't that a feeling that we can all identify with? When Jesus turns away from the disciples after he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because your mind is not on the things of God, but your mind is on the things of humanity, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, if anyone wants to follow me, and think about for a minute just what a subtle kind of dig that is. Because he's got 12 people who have been traveling with him. left families, left parents, who left comfortable homes, who, you know, at some point in the gospel are worrying about where they're going to sleep and what they're going to eat. I mean, these people left behind air conditioning and the comforts of home as it was equated back then, right? And then he turns away from them and he says, if anyone wants to follow me, then you have to take up your cross and follow me. For anyone who wants to save their life will lose it. And anyone who loses their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. And... He lays it on the line. Because that's what the gospel calls us to do. It calls us to lay it on the line. And so the good news for the church, whether we're growing or whether we're shrinking, whether the church as we understand it is going to be here in 50 years, or whether the church as we understand it is not going to be here, and God will raise up a new thing, the good news is that God has a plan, and God's working that plan. The bad news is the plan may not necessarily involve the things that make us feel comfortable. But, God is calling us. God is calling us in those places where we feel alone and afraid to have hope. God is calling us in those places where we see again another school shooting. And it breaks our heart. My heart has been constantly broken ever since I heard about Parkland. And I just don't know what to do about that. And, And it has been on my mind. And part of what's been on my mind is just how much that divides us as a nation and as a people. It divides us as to what to do, as to what a proper response is. And, you know, nobody wants more kids to die, despite what either side might say about the other side. And and I don't think anybody says that not having any any means of self-defense is the answer. But, you know, think how, how angry people have been over this. Think how much it's divided us and and how uncomfortable it makes us to realize that Something has to change. You know, what it is, that's for other people with a different pay grade than mine to decide. But something's got to change in this. And when we face these moments of powerlessness where there's nothing that we really feel like we can do to change anything in the world, we we hear Jesus tell us that if we want to follow Jesus, then we take up our cross. And what is our cross? Our cross is not like... I have to wear glasses because my eyesight's bad and that's my cross to bear. Like, I'm glad I get to wear glasses because and it, makes it, it makes me able to see and read and drive and all those things. My cross is that I'm sometimes kind of a jerk and that separates me from people. And that makes pe- that makes people angry. And sometimes I have to realize that I can't say the thing that I really want to say because it's going to hurt other people even though it would feel really good. You know, my... My cross is that thing that separates me from God because of my ego and because of my own, you know, I know everythingness, right? My cross is that thing that separates me from other people because I can be kind of angry and I can be kind of frustrating to be around sometimes. My cross is that thing that cuts me off from my better self because I give in to either that anger or that anxiety or that frustration or just that brokenness that tells me what kind of bad person I am and I, I happen to believe it that day. Our crosses all look different, but our crosses all lead us to the same place, that place where we're alone and separated and convinced that there's no one who can love us, no one who can accept us, even God. And maybe I might believe in the forgiveness that like other people get, but, but I know what happens in my heart, and I certainly can't believe in the forgiveness that comes to me, you know, that's what it means to take up our cross, to go to that place where it is painful and confront it and finding that God is already there loving us because God knows us and knows our hearts and knows who we are and loves us where we are, even though God calls us into new life. And I think as a people of God, what it means to take up our cross is is to look around our communities and see that there are people who are broken and people who are hurting and they 're not all going to look like they 're broken and hurting because some of them live in million dollar homes and and realize that there are people who separate themselves and isolate themselves and they feed their anger and they feed their rage and they 're the people who we meet and we don 't want anything to do with because maybe they look sh- they look shady and you know they set off our spidey sense or or maybe. They're people who we don't want to be around because they really frustrate us because they voted for whoever the other guy happens to be. Or maybe they're, they're just people who tend to be really angry and alone. And, and they're people who just every time we talk to them, it, it causes us just to want to be anywhere else. How do we take up that cross and give up the comfort in our lives and give up that comfortable distance that we keep from those people, whoever those people might happen to be? and instead see them with the eyes that God sees them, the eyes with which God sees us, that that they are loved, and that they are valued, and in their brokenness, and in their pain, and their anger, and their frustration, and their isolation, God is in them, and in that we are called to love them. You know, it's, it's a love that causes us to name both the Parkland victims and the Parkland shooter, and the people who are standing outside afraid to go in and recognizing their humanity, that they are people who are loved by God, even if we can't imagine what loving them might look like. Our cross is the cross that helps us to recognize that we are all in the same boat. And it is uncomfortable, because I sure would like to toss some of those people overboard. As, uh, as we go back out from this place and we, and we engage in the disciplines of Lent, whether you're giving things up or whether you're taking things up to do, think about the ways in which God is calling you to look at the crosses in your life, not, not the little things that are inconveniences, but those big, ugly wounds that remain in all of our hearts that we don't think anyone can love. And remember that God is loving and healing and redeeming and restoring and resurrecting those places within us. And as you encounter the people in your lives who you you normally avoid, or you see those people who you would normally just drive by, or, you know, you hear somebody say something on Facebook that you just can't wait to get to. I never do that. But, you know, this is the place where the gospel calls us to be and take up our cross and find relationship where we would have isolation. It's not an easy message. No wonder Peter just wanted Jesus to shut up, because we all know where crosses lead. Crosses lead us to that scary place where death is a reality. Crosses also lead to the hope and joy of Easter morning. Amen.